Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday, the 19th of January, 2022. News. Alistair McKenzie. Chairman of Ferry Fiasco Shipyard Ferguson Marine Steps Down. This article is by Martin Williams. The chairman of the beleaguered state-owned shipyard company at the centre of Scotland's ferry building fiasco has stepped down. Current chairman Alistair McKenzie and board member John Hudson are both stepping down from their roles at Ferguson Marine, Port Glasgow for personal reasons. Ferguson Marine said their roles are being advertised along with an additional non-executive director position to strengthen the board's commercial and legal expertise. Appointed by ministers after the Scottish Government took control at the end of 2019, it was said they and the rest of the board would bring a wealth of diverse and extensive experience to the business. They were appointed after the recruitment of controversial £793,000 a year turnaround director Tim Hare after the shipyard went into administration and who announced he was standing down at the end of last year. Mr Hare is to be replaced by new Chief Executive David Tideman who has worked for several decades in the marine, shipbuilding and offshore industries. Mr McKenzie and Mr Hudson were appointed in June 2020 as part of the first board of directors after the shipyard was taken into public ownership. They will leave in April 2022. Mr McKenzie was introduced by the Scottish Government-owned company as a master mariner and an experienced executive and non-executive director. It comes after it emerged delivery dates for two lifeline ferries being built at the Ferguson shipyard are expected to fall further behind schedule, despite moves to recruit workers from overseas. Technical issues with both vessels and the progression of the Omicron variant have been cited as major issues for Ferguson Marine in meeting the very latest schedules. The delayed arrival of the first ship for Calmac Glen Sanax, which was due to serve on one of Scotland's busiest crossing, the Adrossan to Arran service, was to be handed over between July and September this year, four years later than expected. The second ship, currently known as Hull 802, was to be delivered between April and July 2023, five years later than scheduled, and enter service on the Uig on the Isle of Skye to Tarbert on the Isle of Harris and Loch Maddy on North Uist. The nationalised shipyard said further delays last year were down to COVID and a shortage of local skilled labour. But Mr Hare, in a final update before leaving his post on February the 11th, has warned of further issues that will hit the ship's delivery. 
Mr Mackenzie said, I have decided for personal reasons that now is the right time to stand down. I have been proud to serve on the board of Ferguson Marine, supporting the business during a highly challenging period as it recovered from administration and through a transformation programme. Working with the wider board and senior management team, significant progress has been made to improve governance, processes and systems and to strengthen the workforce. I would like to thank John Hudson as he departs, as well as the wider board and shipyard workforce for their commitment and support during the last 18 months. With the arrival of a new chief executive and three new board members in the coming months, I am sure the shipyard will continue to strengthen. The closing date for applications to the board is February the 14th, 2022, and successful candidates will join the board from May 2022. Ferguson Marine was nationalised in August 2019, following its collapse into administration after its ferry building endeavours were dogged by delays and overspends. It had been contracted to deliver two vessels for CalMac for £97 million, with an initial completion date set for 2018. But the cost of the vessels, referred to as 801 and 802, has doubled to over £200 million. In a damning report in December 2020, MSPs on Holyrood's Rural Economy and Connectivity Committee said the procurement of the boats from the Ferguson Marine Yard was a catastrophic failure. The committee inquiry found that the procurement process was not fit for purpose. The Scottish Government also lost £45 million in loans that it sunk into the previous company. This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 19th of January 2022. From the Sports Section. Aberdeen boss Stephen Glass addresses Lewis Ferguson transfer link after Rangers draw by Christopher Jack. Stephen Glass has dismissed the possibility of Lewis Ferguson leaving for Serie A after he was linked with a move to Cagliari. The Scotland international earned Aberdeen a point against Rangers on Tuesday night as he slotted home from the spot to cancel out a Yanis Hagi opener. Reports earlier in the day touted Ferguson for a loan switch to the continent with a potential £3.5 million fee at the end of the campaign. Glass said, if you're referring to the Italian one, no, that might have been the craziest thing I've ever seen, zero. We'll take one of your best players and give you nothing, maybe get something if we stay up. Everyone would be at it if, it if that worked. Nothing at all has come in for him, but on performances like that, people would love Lewis Ferguson and their team. We do. It would be brilliant if we could keep the group together. We're in control of all of it. Some have a few months left, some have a few years. We're in control of every situation. It might get difficult if silly money is involved. The club decides what they accept. We're continually trying to get stronger. My first experience as a manager in the January window, I can see why people say it's difficult. You don't know what might go out the door, but we're ready for every eventuality. Aberdeen were worthy of their point at Pataudry as they held Rangers for the second time this term to dent their title challenge once again. The Dons were bemused that referee Kevin Clancy failed to award a spot kick when Ryan Hedges collided with Alan McGregor. I don't even look for one anymore, Glass said, when asked if he received an explanation from the whistler. 
The linesman said there wasn't enough contact for a penalty, and the ref said there was no contact. I think we got what we deserved with the penalty in the second half. I didn't feel we were under a hell of a lot of pressure. I think it was coming. We came out really on the front foot in the second half, so it was a matter of time. I had real belief, and they showed real belief that they would come back and win it. That article was by Christopher Jack. Recorded from the Herald on the 19th of January 2022. From the sports section. Rangers star Kent's red card branded ridiculous after Aberdeen draw by David Irvin. Rangers star Ryan Kent's red card has been slammed and branded ridiculous after the 1-1 draw with Aberdeen. The winger saw red after receiving two bookings in the feisty encounter at Pitodre. First he was booked after a coming together with Johnny Hayes as tempers flared and the Rangers man pushed away the Aberdeen defender. Then seven minutes from time Kent was given his marching orders after being ruled to have fouled Scott Brown as he hooked the ball down the line. But BBC sports scene pundits Richard Foster and James McFadden both believe the red card was harsh, as they questioned the second caution in particular. Ex-Aberdeen and Rangers fullback Foster commented, It's so soft. Kevin Clancy had already got the card out before Kent even touches Hayes, so I don't know who was getting booked. But just have a word with the two players. It's a heated environment with a lot of emotion. Just calm the situation down. The second one, yes, it is a maybe just a foul. We cannot give him a second booking for that. It is a ridiculous red card. McFadden agreed that the second booking was harsh, but explained the yellow, first yellow may well have been warranted due to Kent's reaction. He said the first one is a yellow card because of the reaction. The challenge on Johnny Hayes is a debatable whether it was even a foul. Hayes knows exactly what he is doing. He wants to get into Kent's face. He wants to frustrate him. He's trying to walk away around Kent, but he just can't help himself and he pushes Hayes, and that's why he's given the yellow card. But when you can see from here, second incident, you think he's caught Scott Brown, and he's got a second yellow and he's off. But when you see it again, there's not a lot of contact, if any. Scott Brown might kick through and hit Ryan Kent and go down. That article is by David Irvin. Herald Scotland, 18th of January, 2022. Alistair Phillips-Davis Wind-powered future will transform communities. Monday was another important milestone in Scotland's and the UK's journey towards a cleaner and more secure energy system as Crown Estate Scotland confirmed who has been selected to lead the way in developing the next generation of offshore wind farms in Scottish waters. The Scott Wind auction process has awarded lease option agreements that can deliver 25 gigawatts of clean green electricity, enough to power an incredible 40 million British homes, helping not only to cut carbon emissions, but also to reduce the country's dependence on volatile fossil fuels. As Scotland's largest headquartered energy firm, we're delighted our partnership with Marubene and CIP has been successful in winning the rights to our preferred site, which will see up to 2.6 gigawatts build off the coast of Scotland. At COP26 in Glasgow, we and others told the world how wind and renewables must form the backbone of our efforts to fight climate change. Scottish waters are some of the windiest in the world, so it isn't surprising that many are being drawn here to develop in them. But for all the competition, no one anywhere in the world is building more offshore wind than Scottish headquartered SSE. That is something we should all be incredibly proud of. 
Employees at our Glasgow and Perth Renewables Hubs of Excellence, alongside others across the country, are developing, planning and engineering some of the most groundbreaking projects in the world, including the world's largest and deepest offshore wind farms. We paved the way on this net zero journey. SSE is set to be a Scottish record breaker for the largest offshore wind farm in our seas with our Sea Green project, as we were for our previous Beatrice project, supporting local jobs and investing in communities. The £2.5 billion Beatrice offshore wind farm off the coast of Caithness has been transformative for the town of Wick, supporting local jobs and upgrading the harbour side. It is a fantastic example of how offshore wind projects can support a just transition, with over two-thirds of its control room staff having previously worked in oil and gas. Down the coast, we're developing the £3 billion, 1.1 gigawatt sea green offshore wind farm, which will provide enough green energy to power more than 1.6 million homes. And in the Firth of Forth, Berwick Bank Offshore Wind Farm is in the early stages of development with the potential to deliver up to 4.1 gigabytes of installed capacity. Further down the coast and even further out to sea, we're developing the world-leading Dogger Bank Offshore Wind Farm. But these incredible projects will generate much more than just electricity. For people and communities across Scotland, the impact will be huge. US power giant GE and the Global Energy Group have separately launched plans for massive new offshore wind manufacturing facilities on Teesside and the port of Nig in Scotland, respectively. Investments like these will create hundreds of skilled green jobs in the UK and provide real opportunities for the supply chain and for workers to make the transition from oil and gas to renewables. Today's news is the next step in our, our £12.1 billion net zero acceleration programme, which will see us investing right across the energy value chain. We're building on our renewables pedigree and exporting our skills internationally, taking Scotland's engineering prowess across the world. But the SSE group benefits from being a multi-skilled business with interests across low-carbon assets and infrastructure. It's this breadth and scale that means we can invest £7 million every single day in some of the biggest and most ambitious net-zero projects in the world. Just as SSE Renewables is leading the way in Scottish seas, our networks businesses are delivering net-zero across the hills and mountains of the north of Scotland as well. We have huge electricity transmission networks investment planned to transport renewable electricity to Scottish homes as well as exporting it to the rest of the UK. We will need to work collaboratively with the regulator and communities to enable the timely investment necessary to meet UK Government 2030 offshore wind targets, whilst also accommodating all of the proposed Scotwind projects. At the same time, our SSEN distribution business is also investing big to bring that renewable power right to homes and support the electrification of heat and transport over the next decade. Areas where huge investment and growth is needed and huge potential is to be had. Our heritage in clean power means we are well positioned to invest in new technologies too. We are looking to develop carbon capture and storage technology which would see Scotland's last gas-fired power station, a station critical for when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, redeveloped with clean, low-carbon, flexible technology that would slash emissions and provide the balance needed to support more renewables. That technology is cutting edge and will see skills honed over years in the northeast stay in the northeast. We're working with the Scottish and UK governments to progress it as quickly as possible. 
SSE is the UK's clean energy champion because we are a business investing in the assets and infrastructure needed to electrify the economy to reach net zero. In offshore and onshore wind, in hydro, in pylons and wires, in distribution and EV infrastructure, in the grid to support lower carbon homes and in the new technologies to get us there. Investments like these will create hundreds of skilled green jobs in the UK, provide real opportunities for the supply chain and are the route to delivering the COP26 as promised to build a green, cleaner, greener, net zero world. Alistair Phillips-Davis is the Chief Executive of SSE. Herald Scotland, 18th of January 2022 The Eco-Horror of Ghost Flights and Tickets for a Fiver by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer A sky over Europe zipping with almost empty planes, it's a haunting and distressing image. I can't help thinking that when, in the future, people look back on the many ways we failed to grapple properly with the greenhouse gas emissions problem, these so-called empty ghost flights will be one of the phenomena we look at with disbelief. But the aviation industry, of course, doesn't get that yet. You only have to look at the latest controversy around so-called ghost flights in Europe to see the way that, for the sector, climate is just a ping-pong to bat around in the name of business survival and future profit. Over the past few weeks, there has been some controversy over how many of these flights there are and why they exist. The EU's use-it-or-lose-it rule on flight slots means that airlines have to use their set takeoff and landing times at least eight times out of ten or forfeit them. This is not, by the way, an issue in the UK, where landing slot rules have been suspended since the start of the pandemic, but it is an issue that was kicked off in Europe recently when Lufthansa Group complained that EU rules had forced it to operate 18,000 such ghost flights during the winter season. Ryanair, with its usual publicity-prompting flair, reacted to their complaint with the suggestion that the airline group do as they do and simply sell their seats for cheaper. The solution to Lufthansa's ghost flights problem is a simple one. Just sell these seats to consumers, said Ryanair's chief executive Michael O'Leary. Lufthansa loves crying crocodile tears about the environment when doing everything possible to protect its slots. It's hard to see, amongst all the ghost flight statements of the past few weeks, anyone in the whole airline industry who seems to be taking the climate crisis seriously. Certainly the Director-General of ACI Europe didn't seem to be doing so when, defending the EU rules, he said, talk of ghost flights and of their environmental impacts seems to hint at a doomsday scenario that has no place in reality. Let's stick to the vital task of recovering and rebuilding together. The worst thing about empty flights, or even half-empty flights, for us as consumers who might be bothered about our own pollution, is that the less full the flight, the bigger the impact of our own journey, the more emissions have been effectively spent getting us there. The ghost flight's story is also haunting because it draws attention to where we're at more generally. I don't believe that to save us from climate disaster we all need to stop flying permanently, but it seems to me we're in a moment when it would be good for those who are regular flyers to take a flight's holiday, knowing that certainly in terms of short haul, the technology is coming in in the form of zero emissions electric and hydrogen flights. Long haul, unfortunately, does not yet have such prospects. Of course, it's not only ghost flights we may shake over our head over in future years. Not exactly much better, though managing to sound superior, are cheap airlines, who offer flights for little more than a cup of coffee and a sandwich in order to fill their seats. 
Ryanair may be having a field day attacking Lufthansa, but some of its prices show how far the cost of flights is from representing its cost to the planet. These are flights so cheap they might as well be free, so cheap as to make all other forms of travel seem like a budgetary nonsense. A friend tells me her husband was looking at flights to Poland for £5. Online I found Ryanair offering flights to Spain from £4.99. A which report published last year showed we have a system where the flights which belch around six times more emissions into the atmosphere cost about 50% less than rail travel. Little effort has been made to change this. Of course, none of this is particularly new. We know it already. The world of aviation has long offered us a prism through which we can see how much it's the messed up world of our systems, not just personal consumer choice, that is wrecking the planet. But we can shift this. Ghost flights and cheap flights like these are another reminder of the need not just for removal of this EU red tape around flight slots, but for a significant carbon tax on aviation. That would be one way of getting serious about its emissions. Other countries are ahead of us on this. Denmark's Prime Minister, for instance, announced this year we will decide on a new and ambitious tax on CO2. It must ensure that companies that pollute the climate pay for their emissions themselves. This also applies to air traffic. To travel is to live, and this is why we fly. But at the same time, it is harmful to our climate. Imagine if Denmark could help solve that problem. We need to make it green to fly. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 19th of January 2022, Arts and Entertainments. How we are translated by Jessica Gaetan Johannesson. Phenotypes by Paolo Scott. The Retreat by Alison Moore. Paperback Reviews by Alistair Mabbitt. How we are translated, Jessica Gaetan Johannesson, scribe, £8.99. Kristen is 24, Swedish and lives in Leith with her boyfriend, Kieran, a Colombian-born nurse who was adopted and has only known Scotland. He's decided to learn Swedish for Kristen, but she would rather he just talk to her in English about their relationship and her newly discovered pregnancy. At work, Kristen dresses as a Viking in a museum where people play at being their ancestors and are only allowed to speak their native tongue, which is reason enough for her to ponder language at length. Does language affect how we think? Are we different people depending on which language we speak? And most importantly, can a couple who grew up speaking different languages ever truly connect? As interesting and as well written as her explorations are, Johannesson's offbeat approach doesn't make a great virtue of plotting and her various elements just miss fusing together into a satisfying unified novel. Phenotypes, Paulo Scott and other stories, £10. From the Brazilian town of Porto Alegre came two brothers. Federico had lighter skin than Lourenco, which meant that he was spared the worst of the racism surrounding them as they grew up. His guilt over passing for white led him to anti-racist activism. Now, in 2016, Federico sits in a government commission investigating the use in a race quota scheme of software designed to classify people by their ethnicity and the student protests that have resulted. On the commission, he faces his country's racism head-on, but then he has to return to Porto Alegre because his niece has been arrested for carrying a firearm to a demonstration, a gun which threatens to blow a family secret wide open. The well-structured phenotype skillfully examines complex issues through its characterisation, but for all its considered thoughtful approach, it's still an angry and emotional novel which allows Scott to rail against his homeland's racism. The Retreat, Alison Moore, 
Salt, £9.99. Aged 40, aspiring painter Sandra goes to an artist's retreat in the island of Lalo in the English Channel. Attracted to the island partly because silent film star Valerie Swanson once lived there. Unfortunately, her reception couldn't be more unwelcoming. The other attendees gang up and bully her. Unsure whether the problem is with them or her, the demoralised Sandra has no choice but to fight back. Her story is intercut with chapters about Carol, who goes to the same island to finish a novel some years later, and senses a presence in Swanson's old house, taking time away from her writing to learn about its previous occupants. Drawing us in with a steadily building atmosphere, Moore layers her text with references to fairy tales and literary islands, Carol's eerie experiences suggesting a connection to Sandra's plight, before she smartly but not excessively neatly ties up her various strands leaving behind a palpable sense of unease. By Alistair Mabbitt. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 19th of January 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Simple Minds reveal the little-known song that helped them become global rock stars by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Legendary Scots rock band Simple Minds are celebrating an anniversary of their first concert with the release of a song that helped them become global stars. Act of Love has been re-recorded to mark the anniversary of their debut live show at Glasgow's Satellite City on January 17, 1978. The band say the song was synonymous with the beginning of the story of Simple Minds, who went on to become chart toppers across the world. It was the first song played at the Satellite City show in January 1978, and the opening track in the demo tape that won the band their first record deal later that year. I always loved that song, says Simple Minds frontman Jim Kerr. To all intents and purposes, it was the first thing anyone heard of Simple Minds. It became our rallying cry, our banner. The band formed in Glasgow in 1977 would go on to release this string of hit singles, becoming best known internationally for Don't You, brackets, Forget About Me, close brackets, which topped the Billboard Hot 100 in the United States in 1985. Four decades on, they notched up 60 million record sales with the help of numerous hit singles such as Glittering Prize, Belfast Child, Waterfront, Alive and Kicking and Somewhere Somewhere in Summertime. As the band established themselves as the hottest property in the Scottish post-punk scene, Act of Love became an early live favourite. We believed in it, but would anyone else? Kerr continued. It was so great when they did, it was the oxygen we needed to continue. By the time Simple Minds recorded their debut album, Life in a Day, early in 1979, the song had disappeared into the mist without ever being properly recorded. Through the years I've always wanted to go back to it, says Kerr. In 1980, the singer recycled the title phrase as the opening line to celebrate the electro-blues song from Simple Minds' third album, Empires and Dance. Meanwhile, bootlegs of the 1978 demos ensured that Act of Love became a cult songs among die-hard fans. The band returned to, to the Lost Song Hile recording the next Simple Minds album in Hamburg during 2020 and 2021, the follow-up to 2018's acclaimed Walk Between Worlds. We tinkered around with it, says Kerr. When we listened to the original demo, we loved its spirit and its general form, but it sounded like a youth club band song. How could we do that now, adding extra pieces without losing the essence? Of the original concept, he added, I was thinking about the excitement of what we were setting out to do. We were rehearsing the afternoon in a derelict building in the Gorbals, and I'd walked past Govan Hill Library, thinking about the idea of the muse, a voice within that will appear and provide inspiration. That's what the song was about originally.
Now I'm looking back, reflecting on how the belief was real. When Charlie played that riff, it made me think we could do this. From that belief becomes your attitude, your body language, the whole culture of the band. Now the song is set to become a link between the band's glittering past and still evolving future, while the band prepare to recommence their world tour, which was curtailed in 2020 due to the Covid pandemic. They're due to play the Glasgow Oval Hydro on April 6 and the Edinburgh Summer Sessions on August 12 and 13. What a thing, merging the very first Simple Minds song and Where We Are Now, says Care. There's a story there, I think we've managed to tell it well. By Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of January 2022. From the sports section. Hibernian manager Sean Maloney provides Elias Mickelson work permit timescale as Martin Boyle gets called up by Matthew Lindsay. Sean Maloney has welcomed Martin Boyle's latest call-up for Australia and insisted Hibernian will be able to cope without their on-form winger in his first Edinburgh Derby. Socceroos manager Graham Arnold is set to name Boyle in his squad for Qatar 2022 qualifiers against Vietnam on January 27th and Oman on February 1st today. The nine times capped 28-year-old will be a huge loss for Hibs, who are set to take on Motherwell Livingston in Hearts in the Cinch Premiership in the coming fortnight. But Maloney believes he has adequate cover. Speaking ahead of the Scottish Cup fourth-round match against League One leaders Cove Rangers Easter Road tonight, he expressed hope that his new signing, Elias Mickelson, will secure his work. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of January 2022, from the sports section. Referee Kevin Clancy blasted for poor performance during Aberdeen vs Rangers clash by Aidan Smith. Kevin Clancy was poor and inconsistent during Tuesday night's Aberdeen vs Rangers showdown, according to former referee Charlie Richmond. The whistler has come under fire after sending off Ibrox winger Ryan Kent and also for a penalty incident where Aberdeen felt that they should have had a spot kick after Alan McGregor challenged Ryan Hedges. On the red card, Richmond told Football Scotland... Scott Brown has played for it and Kevin has bought it. Overall, I thought he tried to referee the occasion rather than the actual game. Aberdeen vs Rangers is very volatile, but when you look at the individual incidents, there's a lot of things that he could have man-managed. I thought he was a little inconsistent and had a poor game. Aberdeen manager Stephen Glass was baffled as to why his side were not awarded a penalty seconds before Rangers scored in the eventful 1-1 draw at Pitodry. Goalkeeper McGregor caught Hedges after the Dons forward got to a long ball first, but Clancy waved play on and Rangers went straight up the park to score through Yanis Hagi in the 20th minute. The Dons eventually got a spot kick through a clear handball from Alfredo Morelis and Lewis Ferguson levelled in the 73rd minute, but they could not find a winner after Kent's red card. On the first half incident, Glass told Sky Sports, it's a penalty kick. I think anybody with a pair of eyes can see it's a penalty kick. It might be difficult for the ref with the distance he's from, but I don't know how the linesman doesn't see it. But you can't complain about it or you end up in the stand. That article was by Aidan Smith. Herald Scotland, 20th January, 2022. Mark Smith, the Glasgow M&S that was doomed to close by Mark Smith, feature writer. A man who owns a pub on Socky Hall Street once told me how bad business was in the area. He said there was no longer any real reason for people to come to Glasgow's most famous street and the only saving grace was its branch of M&S. If that closed, he said, God knows what would happen to Socky Hall Street. And now it's happening. 
Marks and Spencers has announced that its Sucky Hall Street branch is to close in April and investment will be made instead at this, in the store at Argyle Street. The company's regional manager, David Bates, said shopping habits were changing and it meant the company needed to focus investment on the right stores and the right places. Not only is this terrible news for the staff, who will hopefully be found jobs elsewhere in the company, it's also pretty gutting for regular customers like me. I bloody love that shop and went there at least four times a week for ten years. That's four times a week at a five at a time for lunch, which, excluding holidays, means I spent £9,200 in a decade and that's not even counting the times I got dinner and wine there. And it was worth every penny, I have to say. The food and staff are brilliant. But what happens now? In some ways, the picture as a whole is not all that bad for M&S because they've just had a record-breaking Christmas. Sales in the 13 weeks to January were £3.3 billion, 18.5% more than the same time last year, and its food division had its highest sales ever. Their clothing and home sectors have also started growing again after years of decline. However, the M&S on Socky Hall Street is something of a special case and faced a very particular problem. Its regional manager put his finger on it when he said the company needed to focus on the right stores and the right places. Lee Sparks, Professor of Retail Studies at Stirling, also identified the issue when he told me the problem with Sucky Hall Street was the centre of Glasgow has effectively shifted to the other end of town, so the street was no longer as important as it once was. Why would you spend lots of time there, he said. What's the draw? I think anyone who's ever lived or worked in the centre of Glasgow will know what Professor Sparks means and can see that the Sucky Hall Street M&S is a victim of the trend. It's also the reason the company is focusing on Argyle Street. The trickier question is how to solve the bigger problem of the street itself and some of the people I've spoken to over the years think the answer is to attract more big shops and big name brands. There are other, others, however, who take a different approach and accept that the days of big name stores like M&S on the street may be over. A few of the people I spoke to pointed out that Sucky Hall Street has many cultural assets in and around it. The CCA, the art school, the conservatoire, the theatres at either end, and their argument is that you could start to build around that hub, not just with retail, but other businesses too. The suggestion essentially is that rather than an almost total reliance on retail, you create something that's instead based on restaurants, cafes and bars, like Finiston, but also residential. Someone from the Chamber of Commerce pointed out to me that Glasgow City Centre has about half the population you'd expect compared to Birmingham and Manchester. If you change that, the atmosphere of the street could also change profoundly. This will not happen quickly, and it doesn't immediately solve the sight of all those empty shop fronts that sit there like missing teeth in a broken jaw. But I can't help thinking about that publican who worried about the future of the place where he makes his living. God knows what will happen if M&S closes, he said. But now the thing he feared is happening, and it means our beloved street needs a different kind of future. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 20th of January 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Celtic Connections, this year's festival. By Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. With the lifting of restrictions on indoor events on Monday, Celtic Connections has now confirmed that nearly 60 events will now go ahead in front of a live audience. Public safety measures put in place by the Scottish Government to combat the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 had put this year's festival in doubt. Hold on, I thought it had already been cancelled. 
No, a number of events had been cancelled, including the hugely popular Roaming Roots review, and others have been moved online as the festival tried to firefight in the face of venue restrictions. But now that the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has announced that from Monday indoor events will once again be allowed, the festival has announced that a substantial part of this year's programme will be able to go ahead as originally planned. But the festival starts tonight, doesn't it? Yes, the opening night's event, Neath the Gloaming Star, a performance by some of the new generation of Scottish folk singers, takes place at Glasgow's Royal Concert Hall this evening in front of a restricted audience of just 200 people. It will also be filmed, however venues won't be able to fully open up until the safety measures lift on Monday. So, who can we see over the next couple of weeks then? Musicians from all over the world, as well as many traditional musicians from Scotland and Ireland. Appearances by the likes of Anushka Shankar, the Sharon Shannon Quartet, Blue Rose Code and the Grammy-nominated Pakistani composer and vocalist Aruj Aftab are all scheduled to appear. Brackets, negative COVID test permitting, of course, close brackets. This must be quite a relief for the organisers. You would think so. It has been a fraught few weeks since restrictions were reintroduced towards the end of last year. In 2020, Celtic Connections was one of the last events that managed to take place before COVID decimated the festival calendar. Last year, the Glasgow Festival moved online, attracting 30,000 viewers from 60 countries. But gala events like this need a live audience. Why does all this matter? For Glasgow, Celtic Connections, now in its 29th year, has been a reliable boost to the economy at an otherwise quiet time of year. In 2019, it generated £5.6 million for the city and attracted 38,000 visitors. Those figures will be hard to match in 2022 given the uncertainty around this year's event, but even so, it should prove a useful fill-up for the local economy, as well as promising a few good nights out. By Teddy Jameson. The Herald, Friday the 21st of January 2022, News. Covid Scotland, future lockdown not ruled out with tricky moments ahead. Leech. This article is by Jodie Harrison. A return to full lockdown in Scotland is unlikely, but there could be some tricky moments in the coming months, one of Scotland's leading clinicians has said. In recent weeks, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said there is reason to be optimistic about the trajectory of the Omicron variant, with Scottish Government projections for daily infections not being met. Ms Sturgeon this week said Scotland had turned the corner on the Omicron wave. Speaking on the BBC Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland programme, National Clinical Director Professor Jason Leach said he cannot see a return to the tough restrictions put in place earlier in the pandemic, but added they cannot be ruled out for sure. I don't think we'll go back to full lockdowns, he said. I can't tell you for sure, nobody knows for sure, but my reading of the science, the history of pandemics, the global research that's going on, would suggest that the very original days, now some two years ago unbelievably, where we were locked in our houses, I don't think we're heading back there. But I think we might have tricky moments on the road out. But I'm hopeful today because Omicron is diminishing. This week, Ms Sturgeon announced the remaining restrictions imposed to tackle the Omicron strain, which include caps on crowds at events, social distancing in public places, and table service in venues which serve alcohol, will end from Monday. However, 
Face masks will still be required in public places and government guidance continues to urge people to work from home along with self-isolation requirements and the vaccine passport scheme still in use for some venues. Face coverings will also continue to be mandatory in secondary schools. Asked when school children will be able to take their masks off, Professor Leach said, I honestly don't know. We've got a very, very senior education recovery group, ERG, chaired by Professor Linda Bald, with experts on there, in education of course, but also in public health. We've got parent representatives, we've got unions, who come up with a consensus science. They then advise the senior clinicians in the government. It is then for Professor Leach, the Chief Medical Officer, and the Chief Nursing Officer to take their advice to the government for a decision to be made, he said. He went on to say the ERG do not want face coverings in secondary schools unless that is the safest thing to do, adding, they'll give us advice to remove them when they think it's appropriate, and I think that day is coming. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, Friday the 21st of January 2022, News. Scottish Independence. Partygate hurt the Union, say Scots. This article is by Jodie Harrison. More than half of people in Scotland think the Downing Street Partygate saga has hurt the case for the Union, according to a new poll. The research carried out by the Scotsman also found that almost 4 in 5, 78% of respondents think Prime Minister Boris Johnson should resign over the allegations of coronavirus rule-breaking parties. The survey of 1,004 Scots asked to what extent the alleged parties in Downing Street have hurt the case for the Union, with 54% saying they have hurt it either a lot or a little. More than a third, 35%, said the claims have either not really hurt it or not hurt it at all, while 11% said they did not know. The survey was carried out between January the 14th and 18th, after allegations emerged on January the 13th that a party took place at Downing Street on the eve of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. However, support for Scottish independence remains split down the middle despite the Partygate allegations. Asked how they would vote if a referendum on Scottish independence was held tomorrow, 50% said they would vote yes to independence, two points higher than in October, and 50% said they would back no. When don't knows are included, support for yes and no was at 46%, with 8% undecided. The poll was carried out by Savanta Comres for the Scotsman and questioned people aged 16 and over. Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross called on Mr Johnson to resign after he admitted attending a drinks party in Downing Street during lockdown. Almost 8 in 10, 79% of respondents said Mr Ross made the right decision in calling for the Prime Minister to resign. Chris Hopkins Political Research Director Savanta Comres said a 50-50 split on the independence voting intention does represent a bit of a shift towards yes since our last poll in October, 
but ultimately, given the disaster the UK government in Westminster is currently experiencing, one would perhaps expect support for independence to be higher. Indeed, many swing independence voters will likely weigh up in their minds the competence of both the Scottish and UK governments at any given moment to help decide how they'd vote at a future referendum. And while the UK government is in disarray, with four in five saying the PM should resign over Partygate, it's perhaps surprising that support for Scotland to go its alone away from the disingenuous nature of Westminster politics isn't higher. This article is by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 21st of January 2022, from the sports section, judo, Andy Burns keeping fingers crossed for home nations with Commonwealth Games looming, by Graham McPherson. Judo returns to the Commonwealth Games programme this summer and Andy Burns could be forgiven for feeling somewhat conflicted. The 36-year-old was part of the Team Scotland medal rush on home soil in 2014, claiming a middleweight bronze on a memorable few days for the sport in Glasgow. Since then, however, he has spent six years working with the Wales Judo Association, initially in strength and conditioning, and then later on in performance support and coaching. He took a break from the sport in 2020, but has returned to coaching again recently in his current domicile of Bath, back on the mat working primarily with English judoka. The Glaswegian naturally hopes what is expected to be a youthful Scotland team will be among the medals again in Birmingham this summer, while admitting he would also like to see the Welsh and English athletes he has worked with too also go well. In general, however, Burns is just glad to see the judo back in the games after not being included in the Gold Coast programme in 2018 and hopes another home crowd will help replicate the atmosphere of Glasgow eight years ago. It's going to be an exciting year for judo with the Commonwealth Games to look forward to in the summer, he said. I probably didn't properly celebrate after getting my bronze in 2014, as two days later I was off to an Olympic qualifier in Miami. But when I look back now, that was a brilliant time in Glasgow. I could possibly have tried to go for the team again this year, but at 36 it would be a hard push and I didn't want to block a young Scottish judoka from getting that multi-games experience. So I'm just excited to watch it as a spectator. And, having trained in and competed for Scotland, coached the Welsh team but live in England, I'm really interested to see how the British judoka get on. I think it's going to be a really competitive tournament. The word on the ground is the Canadians are sending over a pretty strong team, so it won't be plain sailing for the home nations. But I'd like to see them deliver, especially with it being in Birmingham and I'm sure, Covid permitting, it will be a brilliant atmosphere like we saw in Glasgow eight years ago. It's a young squad from that, I understand, of the Scottish team, so it will be a great experience for them regardless and I hope they make the most of it. Burns retired from elite level judo in 2016 after injuries finally ended his hope of competing at the Olympics but has remained working in sport. The former British champion has diversified from judo over the last few years, initially taking a post with the English Institute of Sport, EIS, as performance support manager in their archery programme. He has now opened 2022 by embarking on a new challenge, joining UK Sport as a coaching advisor across a number of different disciplines.
Coaching was what I got into when I first retired, he added. And then the opportunity came to join the EIS to help with all things around talent development and I thought it would be good to step outside my judo bubble. Most people say they stay in the same sport their whole lives but it had started to feel too similar to being an athlete for me, living on the road and being away at competitions most weekends. It never really felt like I'd moved away. So I wanted to learn how other sports operate. One common problem I discovered was around the development of future coaches who could step into a world-class programme. And that's what's led into this latest opportunity with UK Sport. I'm going to be supporting coaches right through the pathway, from those going to the Olympics in Paris in two years, to those just setting out on their journey. It's about digging into what they're trying to trying with their athletes, what is working for them and why. But it's certainly not about me going in and telling them how to do their jobs better. Coaching is probably our biggest competitive advantage in the UK, but other nations are catching up. So it's about how you, you maintain that advantage to stay out in front. I'm back doing some coaching again too. I've accepted a small contract, 35 to 38 days a year, to coach the senior British team at competitions and camps. So it's good being back out in the mat again to support that programme. It also means I can better understand other coaches and what they're going through when I'm living that life myself. And that article was by Graeme McPherson. The Herald Scotland, Friday the 21st of January 2022. Scottish School Sex Survey Has Prompted Immaturity from Adults by Katrina Stewart. Listening to some of the rhetoric around the so-called SNP School Sex Survey, it becomes very difficult to tell who the adults are and who the children Kiddie sex survey and pervy politicians are some of the more juvenile phrases that have been bandied about. Actually, that's unfair. Judging by the young folk I'm acquainted with, they'd much make much smarter jibes and pithier. Bandying about pervy politicians as a debating tactic really says much about where we currently are in Scotland regarding public conversation. The Scottish Government has issued a health and well-being census to try to secure a snapshot of the lives of the country's young people. Concerned of Kirkcaldy says perverted politicians as if the whole survey is a malevolent trick designed by MSPs to provide titillation by the back door. Well, it's the back door that's concerning people. One of the questions in the survey, which would be issued to adolescents as young as 14, is about anal sex, and some people, those arguing against the survey, seem to think that politicians have dreamt the question up because they take an unhealthy interest in the sex lives of children. Of course, of course, sex under the age of 16 is illegal, and no one wants young people engaging in behaviours that are not physically or emotionally equipped for. But teenagers won't be learning about anal sex from this class survey. A great number of them will have watched some pretty graphic content on social media platforms and the internet. I would hazard that many of them will have seen some sites that those of us who are a bit older and less inclined to engage with these platforms couldn't even dream of. Gathering current relevant data about a specific cohort from that specific cohort is not the wheeze of leery MSPs. It is data that will help to allocate appropriate resources such as contraceptives and STI screenings. Most vitally, it is necessary to curate tailored and thorough sex education that supports young people's needs, particularly around consent and emotional impact, around pornography and around healthy relationships. 
It's understandable that some parents will feel strongly that the Scottish Government shouldn't, as they see it, be prying into their children's private lives. That comes down to a tension between public health officials, who need to know what young people are getting up to, and squeamish parents who don't want to know what young people are doing, and certainly not if they're doing that. There have been concerns expressed that if you ask young adults how many sexual partners they have had, you're normalising having underage sex. The concern runs that a child who sees a question framed in such a manner will wonder, if they are not sexually active, whether they are abnormal. That's the abstinence argument, and a tale as old as time. Conservative and religious groups tend to promote ignorance and abstinence as the best ways to prevent teen pregnancy, a tactic that demonstrably doesn't work. If parents really think that ticking a box on a census is going to send teenagers running into the arms of a lover, then they can't have met too many teenagers. Young folk are not so easily swayed. Parents are never happy though, are they? When you're a teenager, all your mum and dad want is for you to know nothing about sex and keep your clothes on at all times. As soon as you hit your 20s and they want grandchildren, they do nothing but bang on about you... er... banging on? As well as the very silly accusations and vapid turns of phrase, there was the excruciating story about someone putting in an FOI request to the government asking which cabinet ministers have indulged in anal sex. What a lark! Does this intrepid truth-seeker realise that identical behaviours are inappropriate and appropriate, depending on the context? If my gynaecologist asks me to strip from the waist down, that's perfectly acceptable. If the bus driver uses an identical phrase, we have a problem. Asking pupils to privately answer questions to gather health data is one thing. Asking cabinet ministers to publicly answer questions to attempt to make a muddled point is quite another. The anonymity aspect is really the area that should be the focus of the debate, given safeguarding concerns are a live issue. Who has access to the data and how will young people be protected from bad actors who might abuse the lack of confidentiality? The survey is not anonymous and answers can be easily traced to a specific school pupil. That allows for any concerns raised by that young person's answers to be taken up directly with them. It also means young people are less likely to answer truthfully, which means they may not receive the help they need. Collecting accurate information about children's sexual lives is vital and there has to be a satisfactory, safe way of doing it. Around a third of Scottish local authorities are refusing to take part in the survey and it's likely that more will follow suit, so this survey isn't the answer. But on this, and on so many other current topics, it seems people are unwilling to engage in good faith and instead cleave to the politicised partisan squabbles, on the right and the left. This issue has become such a hot potato that even those who have a vested interest in child welfare and safeguarding are variously accused of being perverts or fanatics. Those with concerns about the survey are met with charges of being a right-wing hack or a conservative nut. I nearly said legitimate concerns there, but that's become a poisoned phrase too, thanks to the ongoing dispute around the conflict, or lack thereof, between trans, people's rights and the rights of women. Even if you really do have some legitimate concerns, the phrase is so closely bound now to allegations of bigotry that you're scuppered. Is reasonable concerns better? Heartfelt bafflement? Young people have sex. Young people also need to be safeguarded and have access to high-quality emotional and practical support. The first of those has to be accepted and processed before the second can happen. Snippy, silly, tit-for-tat squabbling is not the way. The kids are all right, but the adults might like to grow up. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 21st of January 2022. Arts and Entertainments. 
Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters by Ben Burgess, Book Review by Jamie Maxwell Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters Ben Burgess, Zero Books, £11.99 Review by Jamie Maxwell Ten years after his death from cancer at the age of 62, the cult of Christopher Hitchens lives on. Writing in the Financial Times in November, the columnist Janin Ganesh characterised Hitchens as an uncompromising free thinker who conveyed, through his many speeches, articles and essays, the only lesson worth teaching to those who care for truth and its dazzling expression. Never, ever join a team. In what sense is that true? During the last decade of his life, Hitchens grew rich and famous defending things that weren't really under threat, brackets secularism, the West, close brackets, from things that didn't really exist, brackets Islamofascism, close brackets, or didn't exist enough to matter, brackets the far left, close brackets. By 2003 he'd become a courtier for the Bush administration and its imperial misadventures in the Middle East. In 2007, he invited Michael Chertoff, a Republican co-author of the Patriot Act, to administer his rights of US citizenship. Hitchens admitted to feeling exhilarated when the Twin Towers fell. Here we are then, he wrote at the time, in a war to the finish between everything I love and everything I hate. Fine, we will win and they will lose. Ben Burgess's new book traces Hitchens' putative shift from anti-establishment leftist in the 1980s and the 1990s to Iraq war enthusiast and professional anti-theist post-2001. Christopher Hitchens' What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters is a short text at 140 pages and Burgess is a lively narrator. But too much of the material here feels second-hand and not enough of it sheds light on Hitchens' underlying political or monetary professional motivations. The fact that Burgess gleans the bulk of his analysis from YouTube videos of debates Hitchens took part in over the years, Capitalism versus Socialism, The Abolition of Britain, Does God Exist, heightens the sense of churn. The more interesting question is why Burgess chose to write the book in the first place. Burgess is a socialist academic and a masthead contributor to Jacobin magazine. In the early 2000s, he marched against the wars Hitchens supported. Yet the day Hitchens died, Burgess was bereft. The next morning, I'd planned to give my friend a ride to the airport, he writes. When I stopped by his apartment, he poured us two glasses of Johnny Walker Black. Neither of us was in the habit of drinking before noon, but we both wanted to toast Hitch. I did the same thing with my brother when I saw him a few days later. Hitch, really? There is a hint of male hero worship in all this sentimental eulogising. For Ganesh, Hitchens was an artist and provocateur who dwarfed his canvas. For Burgess, he was a raffish intellectual whose embrace of American power signalled a painful loss to left-wing politics. Other interpretations are available. According to Terry Eagleton, Hitchens earned the nickname Hippocritians at Oxford University in the 1960s for his habit of marching for the poor and dining with the rich. Richard Seymour, in his book Unhitched, charts the continuity in Hitchens' thinking. Hitchens quietly declined to vote Labour in 1979 because he secretly wanted Margaret Thatcher to win and backed Britain's campaign in the South Pacific three years later. Hitchens certainly made political journalism look glamorous. In the latter stages of his career, he was earning, by his own account, several hundred thousand dollars a year in book sales and media appearances, and he thrived in front of deferential American audiences. 
but in Britain he was a cliché, an overconfident graduate of the English class system, with a soft spot for empire and the capacity to summon opinion on any subject at a moment's notice. Granted, Hitchens could be funny, caustic and insightful, even when he was wrong, which was often, but radical, dissenting, unconventional, that's a stretch. By Jamie Maxwell From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 24th of January 2022, from the sports section, Celtic star Callum McGregor injury latest with operation on the cards. By Ewan Payton, Celtic skipper Callum McGregor could be out with injury for between four to six weeks, as this has been reported. The hoop star suffered a nasty facial knock during Saturday evening's Scottish Cup victory over Alloa. And Postelicoglu was forced to sub off his captain at the halfway mark, as James McCarthy replaced the Scotland international. And the Daily Mail claimed that McGregor will undergo an operation for a fractured cheekbone this week. This could lead him to being out for well over a month. Georges Giocamakis and Leah Labada grabbed the goals for the visitors, where Connor Salmon was on target for the home side. Celtic are on the road again this Wednesday as they travel to play Hearts in the capital. They then host Dundee United at the weekend before a crunch derby match with Rangers next midweek. Motherwell and Aberdeen follow, with Wraith Rovers and Bodo slash Glimt on the horizon in February also. And that piece is by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 24th of January 2022, from the sports section. Rangers ace Connor Goldson wanted by Championship duo by Ewan Payton. Rangers defender Connor Goldson is, on ta- is a target for two championship clubs, according to a report. Nottingham Forest and West Brom are interested in securing a pre-contact agreement for the Englishman. The 29-year-old has entered into the final six months of his current deal at Ibrox, meaning he is free to speak to other clubs. With negotiations stalling this campaign, it looks like Golson will be headed for the Rangers' exit door in the coming months. And the Scottish Sun say that Forrest and WBA are vying for his services. The report also states that another club is pushing hard for the centre-half. West Brom are currently 5th in the Championship table, while Forrest are 8th as a pair at a Premier League spot. Golson has played 195 games for Jers, scoring 17 goals and was a key player in the team that won the title last season. While Goldson seems likely to leave, Rangers have already bolstered the defensive ranks with a pre-contract agreement in place for John Souter. They had a £300,000 bid to bring him in this month rejected by Hearts at the weekend though. And that piece was by Ewan Payton. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 24th of January 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Issue of the day, the BBC under fire for woke cuts to classic shows by Maureen Sugden, reporter. As if the BBC had not been in the headlines enough in recent days, it has come under fire for making woke cuts after removing jokes from repeats of classic radio shows. What shows? Repeats of old programmes and BBC Radio 4 Extra have been edited by the BBC to remove jokes now considered to be politically incorrect. Any particular programmes? They include Dad's Army, Steptoe Son, The Late Ronnie Barker's Sketch Shows, Lines From My Grandfather's Forehead, and classic sketch show I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again, starring John Cleese. 
An anonymous listener to the channel documented the alterations, describing them as woke cuts in an article in the Times. Specifically, edits are said to include the removal of a joke by Cleese from I'm sorry, I'll read that again. In the original, Cleese impersonating a BBC spokesman said, We have noticed that it is possible to see right up to the girls' knickers owing to the shortness of their miniskirts, so we've asked the girls to drop them. Also, the BBC removed a mention of the N-word from a 1972 episode of Barker's show. What else? A repeat of 1971 radio episode of Steptoe Son was quietly edited to remove Poofy from a line in which actor Wilfred Bramble said, You're carrying on like some Poofy Victorian poet, with a similar cut made from a 1974 Dad's Army, during which Corporal Jones described Chinese people as yellow friends. What did the BBC say? The Times reported a listener complained to the BBC about the cuts last year, saying it is best for the original archive material to go out uncensored and let audiences make up their own minds about what might be offensive. But the BBC say audience would expect them to edit programmes. A spokesman said listeners enjoy a huge number of old comedies from the archives in 4 Extra, and on occasion we edit some episodes so they're suitable for broadcast today, including removing racially offensive language and stereotypes from decades ago, as the vast majority of our audience would expect. It's not entirely new territory. The BBC iPlayer repeats such as episodes of The Office that are now 20 years old feature discriminatory language warnings, while episodes of programmes such as Ronnie Barker's Porridge, made in the 1970s, feature a warning, contains language which may offend. What do the stars say? Cleese has been very vocal about his distaste for political correctness. He previously told BBC Radio 4's Today programme, I don't think we should organise a society around the sensibilities of the most easily upset, because then you have a very neurotic society. If you have to keep thinking which words you can use and which you can't, then that will stifle creativity. The BBC have faced woke criticisms before. Last February, the corporation, currently caught up in a funding row, announced a diversity directive requiring 95% of staff to complete unconscious bias training, and which aimed for 80% to declare their social class. By Maureen Sugden. The Herald, Tuesday the 25th of January 2022. News. Brewdog CEO James Watt denies inappropriate behaviour after BBC documentary allegations. This article is by Caitlin Dewar. Brewdog's chief executive has denied any inappropriate behaviour following allegations in a BBC documentary which accused him of abusing his power in the workplace by behaving inappropriately with female employees. Several staff members working at the craft brewers' outlets in the US alleged they had seen company boss James Watt give private late-night tours to female customers and his conduct often made female bartenders feel uncomfortable. In the BBC Disclosures programme, which aired on Monday night, more than 15 former Brewdog employees spoke out against the CEO. Mr Watt has strongly denied all allegations, adding that the BBC claims are totally false. Caitlin Ising, a former employee at Brewdog's flagship bar and brewery in Canal Winchester, Ohio, Dog Tap, told Disclosure that female staff were dressed down to avoid unwelcome attention from Watt. She told the programme we would make a point to warn new girls, like, hey, just so you know, James Watt's coming to town. Just kind of, 
Leave after your shift. Don't really hang around and don't always do your hair and makeup that day. Like, don't catch his attention. She also claimed that she saw Mr Watt take intoxicated female customers in their 20s on a private tour of the brewery. Watt's lawyer has fiercely denied this allegation, saying that the Scot regularly took male and female friends, as well as customers, on evening tours of the brewery and that they were not intoxicated. The lawyer added that a claim of such behaviour made in 2021 had been fully investigated and not substantiated. He said Mr Watt regularly takes both women and men, friends and customers on evening tours of the brewery. It is not true to say that those who accompany him are intoxicated. The claim that he did was made by an employee in June 2021. It was fully investigated. The claims were not substantiated. No further action was warranted by Brewdog USA HR. The craft beer firm, which was founded in Ellen, Aberdeenshire in 2007, has expanded across the UK, Europe and into the US. It now owns more than 100 bars worldwide, employing over 2,000 staff members. While Mr Watt declined to be interviewed for the documentary ahead of its airing on Monday night, he took to Twitter to make a statement. He said, The BBC published claims which are totally false and they published them despite the extensive evidence we provided to demonstrate that they were false. Reluctantly, I am now forced to take legal action against the BBC to protect my reputation. This article is by Caitlin Dewar. The Herald, Tuesday the 25th of January 2022. News. Quadruple child payments to hit poverty targets, say ScotGov advisors. This article is by Martin Williams. Scottish Government advisers have said the Scottish child payment should be quadrupled while warning that targets for curbing child poverty are to be missed and that levels of deprivation could actually be getting worse. Legislation required the Scottish Government to hit an interim target of less than 18% of children living in relative poverty by 2023-24 and less than 10% by 2030. But the Poverty and Inequality Commission, which provides independent scrutiny advice, has warned ministers that significant work needs to be undertaken to stem the tide with an anti-poverty charity warning that 210,000 children in Scotland could be trapped in a cost-of-living crisis. The Commission say that since targets were set for Scotland, child poverty levels have been at best stagnating and may be starting to rise. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a million people north of the border, including 240,000 children, were trapped in poverty. In a damning analysis, the Commission has said, despite a demonstrable commitment to reducing child poverty, the action that has been taken by the Scottish Government so far is not on a scale or at a pace that is sufficient to meet the interim or final child poverty targets. They said that the first tackling child poverty delivery plan lacked a clear sense of what impact many of the actions it contained were expected to have and how they could add up to progress towards the targets. And they warned that the Scottish Government will need to increase the devolved Scottish child payment beyond the £10 per week currently 
to meet the interim child poverty targets. The First Minister has already announced that the payment will double to £20 from April, but the Commission says it will need to go up further to £40. The Commission said, given the short time left to meet the interim targets, we consider that further social security increases will be necessary to be assured of meeting them. Modelling has shown that increasing the Scottish Child Payment to around £40 per week would allow the interim targets to be met through Social Security alone. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation, JRF, has warned that even if the payment went up to £20 a week, the nation would still be four percentage points short, with 210,000 children in poverty. Scottish Labour have described growing poverty rates as Scotland's shame. The call came as it said that the full impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on households is yet to be felt, prompting concerns child poverty rates could rise further. It follows hot on the heels of a separate analysis by the Fraser of Allender Institute, which warned hitting Scotland's official targets on child poverty will require profound changes to the economy and bold policies such as massive benefit spending and income tax hikes. The report ministers would be able to cut child poverty over the next decade to reach the country's statutory target, but the three scenarios they modelled all involved spending billions on child welfare benefits, which were paid for by eye-watering income tax rises, that shrank the economy almost as much as Brexit. A quarter of children in Scotland currently live in relative poverty, defined as a household income below 60% of the UK median income after housing costs. Under a 2017 Holyrood law, the government is under a duty to reduce the proportion of children in relative poverty to 10% by 2030-31, a drop of 15 percentage points. Commission Chairman Bill Scott said our advice shows that quite simply too many children are still experiencing poverty in Scotland. As a society we believe it's wrong for children's lives to be restricted by poverty. That's why the child poverty targets were set. While we know work is ongoing, progress is not enough to meet the targets and for some measures the position is worsening. Despite a clear commitment, the action taken by the Scottish Government so far is inadequate. The Commission called on ministers to use all the levers available to end the scourge of child poverty. Mr Scott added, targets to reduce child poverty can be met. However, the Scottish Government will have to utilise every opportunity and deliver action faster, coupled with a significant increase in funding. We need to see action across all areas of government in order to release families from the constraints of poverty. Providing parents with support to apply for a job, for example, won't have the impact we want if the parent can't get suitable childcare or doesn't have a reliable bus service to get them to work. To meet the 2030-31 target, it added that further action is needed in areas such as employment and housing, with the report making clear this action must happen now. Here the Commission added that tackling child poverty has to be at the core of design and delivery of a wide range of policies, 
including economic development, employability skills, education, transport, childcare, social security, housing and the transition to net zero. Suicide rates are three times the rate in the nation's most well-off areas, while COVID-19 death rates are more than double that of the least deprived areas. It is estimated that the rise in the Scottish child payment to £20 would lift 20,000 children out of poverty by April 2024, but would still mean the child poverty rate was at 22%. Social Justice Secretary Shona Robinson described tackling child poverty as a national mission, as she said ministers would publish their next delivery plan in March. This will outline the transformational actions the government will take to tackle the problem, she stated. Ms Robinson said, we will double the Scottish child payment to £20 per week from April and will invest £361 million above the level of funding from UK government on social security in 2022-23. The delivery plan will also set out other levers we will use and actions to take, for example on employment, maximising incomes and affordable housing, which all contribute to reducing child poverty. However, we cannot do it alone. We must work together across society to deliver on this national mission. This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 25th of January 2022. From the sports section, Ange Postacoglu told Celtic players not to go into tackles against Alawa due to injury fears. By James Kearney. Celtic manager Ange Postacoglu has revealed he told his players to ease off tackles towards the end of his side's 2-1 win over Alloa in the Scottish Cup as he didn't want any more players to pick up injuries. Three players, goal scorer Liel Abada, captain Callum McGregor and new addition Yusuke Aiduguchi had to come off at the Indo drill after being on the receiving end of heavy challenges. The tackle on Aiduguchi from Mohamed Senga Niang, the Partick Thistle midfielder on loan at Alloa, was rewarded with a yellow card at the time, but the 22-year-old could face a retrospective ban for the incident. Supporters and pundits alike have loudly criticised Senna for the full-blooded challenge and Postacoglu has admitted that he told his players to avoid tackling in the game closing stages to avoid any further injuries. Speaking at a media conference on Tuesday, the Celtic manager explained, The last thing I want is players taking matters into their own hands. The referee is to provide that protection from both sets of players, both from deliberate action but also from reckless action. There needs to be some sort of control out there so that players are confident that things aren't going to get out of control. Wherever I've been, wherever I've managed, every country I've managed at major tournaments, we sit down at the beginning of the year and the referee will show us things they'll be looking for. Since I started managing 25 years ago, there have always been little tweaks to the rules, but the one consistent thing is that they will always show us a vision of tackles they deem to be reckless, dangerous, and they will be punished because it's a big part of the protection of the player. This year was no different. If you show footage of that tackle, Senna on Aideguchi, that's exactly the vision we get shown, and we know that's going to get handled by the referee. To be honest, I told some of the lads towards the end of the game not to go into tackles and look after themselves, because I didn't want any injuries. I didn't feel there was control in that environment. This is not me looking at the referee's performance in terms of the outcome or the result. I've been consistent in saying we'll cop whatever we take in terms of that stuff. 
This is protection of the players, protection of the environment. That's against premeditated stuff or even reckless challenges. Sometimes players are just reckless, but that doesn't mean that's excusable. We had a player who got a serious injury. There are a couple of others that are lucky to escape from that. And I was disappointed with the way the night panned out. That article was by James Kearney. Recorded from the Herald on the 25th of January 2022. From the sports section. Celtic youngster gets green light for Kilmarnock loan switch by James Kearney. Celtic youngster Adam Montgomery is closing in on a loan move to Kilmarnock for the second half of the season, according to reports. The 19-year-old has featured sporadically for Ange Postacoglu this term, filling in at left-back and at left-wing as and when required. The Scotland under-21 internationalist has 18 first-team appearances to his name this term, but is set to aid Kilmarnock's push for promotion, report the Daily Record. The Parkhead Club have given the Academy product the green light to move to Rugby Park, while clubs from the second and third tiers of England have been credited with an interest. The record add that Celtic's preference is for Montgomery to remain in Scotland. The article was by James Kearney. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.